The Lord be with you. Welcome back to Home Worship for the week of Sunday, May 24th. In this season, when we've chosen to forego worshiping together in order to protect the vulnerable among us, as we face isolation, frustration, loss, fear, anger, confusion, and so many other emotions, we've chosen to spend our time diving into the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of our Bibles. And they contain 150 prayers that run the full gamut of human emotion and experience and reflect it back to God in prayer. We looked at Psalm 23. We found comfort in the Lord who is our shepherd. We looked at Psalm 42 and lamented while leaning into hope. And this week we look at Psalm 126 and find an emotion that's much harder to come by these days. Before we pray those words, though, I want to invite you to pray with me that God might speak to us right now. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine on us now as we open your word that as we take up these prayers that you have given to us, we may come to find you at work in every corner of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that we love. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. May those who go out weeping, carrying their seed for sowing, come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Joy. What exudes from this psalm is joy. Rejoicing, shouting, laughing, joy. Joy is one of the characteristic elements of the Christian life. And yet, Christians sometimes get a bad reputation in this respect. The the Reformed, maybe even more so than others. We're seen as too dour, too repressed, too serious. And yet, among the Christians I know, I don't find that to be true. I find them to be people of joy. One of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, has said that the theologian who works without joy is no theologian at all. That if you're talking about God and not finding joy in it, we're not talking about the same God. I have a friend who was a pastor in Philly who used to say often that Christians should throw all the best parties 
because we are people of rejoicing, of celebration. We are those who know there is a God and what that God has done for us. This joy, though, isn't a requirement for the Christian life. It's not as though we're just people who are happier by nature. It's not that we need to find some inner reserve of joy to shout out together or not be able to come together. It's not a requirement. It's a consequence of this life. Joy is the second of Paul's fruits of the Spirit. Love, then joy. It's at the head of the list of the things the Spirit produces within us as it sets down its residence in our hearts as we begin to follow Jesus and his ways. Joy. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of joy in the world right now. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of worry and anxiety. There's a growing sense of anger and frustration and disillusionment and fatigue. There's division and disagreement. There's loss and grief. Those are all emotions we know well right now. Not so much joy. So if we have any hope of doing what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice, then there are some important things we need to learn about joy from Psalm 126 today. And at the center of all of it is the time warp that seems to happen right in the middle of the psalm. Did you notice the interdimensional portal that opened up right between verses 3 and 4? Did you notice it as we went through it? Look at it again. This is how the psalm begins. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we rejoiced. Verses 1 through 3 are in the past tense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. We rejoiced, we sang, we shouted with joy when the Lord restored our fortunes. And here's the next verse. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the water courses in the Negev. Time warp. Verses 1 through 3 look back at a time when God has already restored the fortunes of Zion. And then verses 4 through 6 ask God to restore our fortunes and look forward, hoping for a day when that might be so. See what I mean? Time warp. It's like we somehow got sucked back in time in the middle of the psalm. And understanding that transition right there Learning to live in that space in the middle of Psalm 126 is key to understanding not just this psalm, but joy itself. Because I don't think there was actually a time warp that opened up for us in the middle of the psalm. I don't think there was a sloppy editor who put this together in the wrong order. This psalm flows this way on purpose. And it tells us two really important things about joy. Here's the first one. Our joy in the present 
is built on the foundation of what God has done for us in the past. The psalm begins by rejoicing over what God has done. It's all past tense, as we said a moment ago. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, and we couldn't believe our eyes. We shout with joy because of the incredible thing that God has done for us. This psalm is part of a section of the Psalter, Psalms 120 to 135, called the Psalms of Ascents. These 15 psalms were sung by the pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem to celebrate the three pilgrim festivals each year. These are the psalms that they sang as they made their way into Jerusalem. And in that context, this psalm was sung remembering how God restored the city of Jerusalem. As the pilgrims remembered how Babylon had come, destroyed the city, torn down the temple so that not one block lay upon another, and brought the people off into exile in Babylon. How they languished there. How they lost all hope. And how one day something amazing happened. That the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And with that new king, one day a new edict came down that these exiles were allowed to return home. And that a few years later, they were allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to worship God once again on Mount Zion. And that it was like a dream for them. That they erupted into laughter and joy. It was as though God had brought them back to life and they couldn't contain the joy. And this wasn't the first, and it wouldn't be the last time God had done this. God had shown up when there was no hope, when there was no way out, and God miraculously saved the people. What about the crossing of the Red Sea and the escape out of slavery in Egypt? What about the Battle of Jericho when the walls just fell down, the whole conquest of the Promised Land? What about Gideon and his vastly outnumbered forces? What about David and Goliath? What about David and Saul, David and Absalom? What about Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Or Daniel in the lion's den? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Throughout Israel's history, in those moments when Israel lost all hope and there was no way, God made a habit of showing up and making a way. And we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we rejoice. God's work in the past, saving us by miracle after miracle, allows us to rejoice in the present, no matter our circumstances, Because we know God has overcome far worse. This is one of the reasons we give thanks, like we did last week with Psalm 116. Why we tell the stories of what God has done for us over and over again, because recounting those past stories grows our trust and faith in the present to rejoice even in sorrow and suffering that the God who has done great things for us will do them again. As we sang earlier, O God, our help in ages past, 
our hope for years to come. The first thing we learn about joy in this psalm is that our joy in the present is built on this foundation of what God has done for us in the past. Second thing we learn about joy in this psalm is that our joy in the present borrows from the future and what we know God will do. Just as the first half of the psalm leans into the past, the second half leans forward into the future. And it does so with a beautiful and powerful metaphor of sowing seeds and reaping a harvest. May those who sow in tears reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying the seed for sowing, will come home with shouts of joy, carrying their sheaves. In the past, God has done some incredible things. But in the present, we find ourselves in need of God to work again to again restore our fortunes, to save us again. In the past, we rejoiced, but in the present, we find nothing but tears and weeping, heartache and loss. Those same pilgrims that sang rejoicing of how God had restored them from exile sang those psalms while they were under the thumb of the Roman Empire and prayed that God would again restore our fortunes Those were not easy years as they sang this psalm of rejoicing together. And so this psalm calls upon God to do it again, as Eugene Peterson translates verse 4 in his translation, The Message. The psalmist knows that there's something different about these tears, different about the tears sown in God, that as those tears fall, as they stream down our cheeks, as they run through whatever suffering we endure in the present and fall to the ground, they become something else. Our tears become seeds, seeds that are sown and planted, that go down into the dirt, that die in a way in order to be made new, seeds that carry the potential of life, of new life, of transformation, of seeds that will grow up to bear a harvest 30, 60, even a hundredfold greater. Many of you know that Sam and I have a large garden on the side of our house. It's, it's no farm, but watching Sam toil in it every spring and summer has taught me something, not only about the curses of Genesis 3, but about the soul of the farmer. There are people who live in hope because their livelihood and their work is nothing but despair and disheartening. It begins when you plant seeds, when you put this tiny speck of a thing into the dirt, provide it with water, with light, with heat, and hope against hope, it will actually germinate and grow. And if it does germinate, you hope that it doesn't catch some sort of disease and die, that it doesn't get too leggy in those early stages of growth so that it will be unable to bear the weight of the more substantial growth to come. In those early weeks, you pray for no late freezes that will kill your whole crop. You hope for water and rain to fall so that they don't die for lack of it, but not too much because that can kill them just as easily. 
You want sunlight so they can grow strong, but again, not too much and too hot and too early, or it can scorch and kill them. You fight off birds and chipmunks and rabbits and groundhogs and deer and toddlers who are always threatening your crop. You fight off smaller pests who seek to eat it from inside and from outside. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And you do all this work. You fight against unimaginable odds. You hope against hope. You fight through despair. You plant and replant. You pray because by some miracle, even though every single year it seems like the whole crop will be lost, though it seems all but impossible, still you believe there will be a harvest one day. And the promise of garden fresh tomatoes and zucchini and eggplant allow you to bear the despair and the stress and the anguish because you believe there will be a harvest. Friends, there will be a harvest. And we know there will be a harvest because the first fruits have already come in. That as that first seed was planted when Jesus' dead and lifeless body was planted in a tomb, when it was covered, when the tomb was sealed and darkness reigned after he had endured suffering we cannot imagine and all hope was lost. When the women showed up three days later, they found something surprising. They found that that seed, that small grain of wheat that had fallen into the ground and died, had sprouted into a tree a tree whose branches spread out wide, who bore already good fruit for us to eat, whose leaves now would never again wither. They found that Jesus had risen from the dead and that in Jesus rising, he had conquered over death and darkness forever, that he had broken its stranglehold on us and that he had given his life as a pledge for ours, which means we would one day receive what was his. Resurrection, life, renewal, abundance. Friends, Paul instructs us to rejoice in all circumstances. And I believe that's possible. But I don't believe that will mean there are no tears. One of the extraordinary things we find in following Jesus is that sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. That suffering and joy can be found together. Our world believes the only way to experience joy is to remove anything that's painful or sad or difficult. But that's because our world doesn't understand joy. It understands distraction and amusement and entertainment. If there is one gift we can give to the world right now, it is joy, real, true, deep joy. Joy that comes no matter the circumstances because it has nothing to do with the present conditions of our lives. Because it is not summoned up from the depths of our own souls through great effort and concentration. Joy comes amidst suffering, amidst sorrow, because that joy comes from knowing who wipes our tears, who holds us and our pain, 
and who stands beside us in the darkest of valleys. We rejoice not because our lives are easy and comfortable, not because we are healthy and carefree. Joy comes to us from outside as a gift from Jesus, from the one who died and conquered death, who has rescued us out of its power and who will one day raise us as well, who will wipe every tear from our eyes, who has done great things for us and will do them again. Our joy in the present is built upon the foundation of what God has done for us and borrows from the future that God is making even now. So if you need to experience joy today, what foundation will that joy be built on? What has God done for you? For your friends and family, for God's people throughout the generations? What tears are you sowing right now? What loss, what pain or, or grief or frustration or longing, what tears are going to become the seeds of the harvest of joy God will bring in your life? As we continue to pray together Psalm 126 today and in the days to come, I want you to lift all this up to God, to the one who's given us these words that we might come to find the gift of God's joy even here, even now, erupting into our lives like rivers through the desert. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.